Thanks, Lorraine. Uh, it's worth saying, isn't it, that that's pretty heavy reading. Would that be fair? Okay. We're dealing with important things today, and they aren't light, but they should be dealt with. So we're doing that as part of our series on the life of King David. And we've been learning that David was an amazing king in so many ways, but this is an absolutely tragic part in his life. We're going to pray and ask that God would help us to understand it. Heavenly Father, thank you that you preserved this part of David's life. I pray now that you give us soft hearts and open ears that we might hear and understand what you would say to us through it today. Amen. All right. Well, to get us started, a quick identification test. Does anyone know who this bloke here is? Sorry? Harvey Weinstein. However you'd like to pronounce his second name. Does everyone know who he is? Okay, this guy's been in the media because he had incredible power. Cultural power, political power, positional power. And he abused it terribly in the life of young women who were uh, underneath his um, responsibility. It's just appalling. When we see stories like this, we're left shaking our head at the world, aren't we? It's just tragic. And so we see in this story power, sex, deceit, and scandal. And you come to church and you're going, my goodness, what what is happening? (laughs) How did we end up here? Not in this story, but in our world, murder as well. And, And why do I say these things? Because these things drive world media. They drive the world media. They're the things that we read about, tweet about, hear about, see on our screens. They fill our entertainment and our news and make most of our news indistinguishable from our entertainment, I would suggest. But they aren't new. They've been around for a long time. You might have heard of this thing called the Ten Commandments. Anyone heard of that? Do you remember them? Do you remember them? Okay, some of you do. Okay, that's good. Uh, If I asked you to name them, what would you come up with? Well, well, I've I've done this to lots of people. If I asked you, what are the Ten Commandments? The first one that you'll remember is what? Oh, well, you're good. If if you can remember, honour the Lord your God is the first one, that's brilliant. Most people don't know that. The first one we come up with is do not murder, yeah? And then if we're on a really good streak, we might come up with don't commit adultery. And now we're thinking about things that people do wrong. And so we go, oh, do not steal. That's right. And if I've stolen something, I tell mum I didn't do it, so that's a lie. And the reason I stole is because of this weird one at the end called coveting, which is when I want something that's someone else's. Yeah? Well, there we go. That's the last five commandments. That's six through ten of the Ten Commandments. And what I want you to see is that these aren't just ancient things that were carved on a rock. They're part of our everyday life. And this today is a sermon about sin. And because it's a sermon about sin, this is a sermon about you and me. So I want us to think as we start off, what is sin's arena? And when I say that, what I mean is, where does sin take place? Where's sin happening? If I I read you a little bit, uh, some people come to Jesus and, and they're a bit upset 
that Jesus and his disciples aren't washing their hands before they eat. It was kind of not just a hygiene thing. It was a religious thing. They weren't doing it. And Jesus says this. Sometimes he's a bit blunt. Are you so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever, whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. And these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Important to say, wash your hands before you eat, right? That's good. But don't do it religiously, thinking that you'll keep yourself clean. Jesus says the real arena of sin is actually the human heart. And when we say that, we're not just meaning some sort of organ pumping around. It's the place of your desires, your longings, your plannings, and your schemings. The heart is sin's arena. And you might say, well, that's fine. The sin happens in my heart. That's relatively private. But the problem with sin being in my heart is that sooner or later, the private breaks out from me into the world. And the private becomes public. Yes? This is what we see happen. You might have a quiet thought in your head. But when you act on it, it breaks into my world. And you move into my lane without indicating. I mean, I mean, we, our sin never stays private. It will manifest itself in the public sooner or later. And what I want to do today is to look at the progression of sin in David's life from David's heart out into the world. How did sin get from David's heart out into the world around him? And we're going to start by looking, we're going to look at this passage. So if you've got a Bible, I'd love you to turn it up. We're going to start in, uh, in um, 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. And if someone's got the page number, you can call that out for me. 2 Samuel 11, who's got it? Yeah, that's really quiet. 309. Is that right? Okay, great. So we're going to look at this idea of coveting. There's King David up on his roof. Have a listen to how it starts in verses 1 to 2. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Now, at this point, has David sinned? We're not sure. We're not sure. We don't know, do we? We're not sure. It, it, it says to us that David was home, not out with the army. There's some debate about whether he was doing the right thing by being, out, uh, by being at home while the army was out fighting. Maybe as a king, he should have been with them. But maybe he's got to the point where everything's so well established in Jerusalem, he can delegate this job. But it does seem that the text says everyone's out there and the king's at home. So it's probably implying he should have been out there. But then he's taking a walk. He's walking around the river and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. Has he committed a sin yet? Not really. Not immediately. Seeing isn't sinning. Seeing isn't sinning. But he is sinning. Sinning is looking with intent. Have you heard of loitering with intent? Right, okay. Sinning is looking, I mean, coveting is looking with intent. I have a plan. I'm not just looking, I'm looking and scheming. Yeah? And so now David has committed a sin because we see what he does next. Uh, can everyone see what sin this might be? 
You can wait for dinner. No, 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 I can't wait for dinner. I'm going to grab one right now. This one, stealing. And it's what David does next. Have a look at how sin progresses for David. Uh, In verse 3 it says, And David sent to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. So he sends to find out who's this woman. Even then, potentially, he hasn't sinned. I'd just like to know the name of the woman who's beautiful, who's on the roof. I'm the king, I should know pieces of information. But that's not why he wants to know, is it? And when the information comes back and it says she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite, now we're in dangerous territory, aren't we? Okay? Somebody else's wife. It's a side point, but Uriah the Hittite is one of the men mentioned as one of the famous soldiers in David's army. What that probably means is he's actually a trusted friend of David. And maybe the reason he can see her on the roof is because she's so close to the palace. That's just speculation. At any rate, he knows who she is now, and then he sends for her. Now, the Harvey Weinstein story tells us something very important. It is not Bathsheba's fault that she goes. Is everyone clear on this? David has unbelievable power. He's the king of Israel. And even if he sent nice people with a bouquet, when you turn up wearing the king's name badge and you say, come to the king, there's no opportunity to really say, oh, I'm a little bit occupied at the moment. I don't think I'll come. Add into that the power of a man who's king over a woman who is alone, and it is utterly David's fault. Utterly David's fault. And so he is now, we know, stealing somebody's wife. Stealing is taking what is others for your own. And we see that he did exactly that. She came to him, and the next thing we see is David crossing the line. This next sin is adultery. We we see it just very simply explained here. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now, she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. Adultery was committed. She was somebody else's wife. And on top of that, David was many other women's husband. So he was committing adultery as well. It's not just that she... They're committing adultery. Adultery is taking another's love for your own. And it's wrong. And it is a particular form of stealing. It's a particular form of stealing. And you notice this unusual information here. It says she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. The only reason that's important in the, in the story is to tell us. It's an awkward detail, right? The reason that tells us that is because we know then she's not already pregnant when David sleeps with her. Can we get really obvious at church here? Yeah? Okay. That's the point. So what happens next is this. You can guess, can't you? All right? If only it happened physically. I remember, um, I remember listening to the radio one day and uh, the kids were calling up and saying, what did your parents do to you that you regret that they did? And um, one, one of the kids called up and said, my mum used to say us, when we lied, our noses turned red. Okay? And so when I came up to her, I covered my nose whenever I wanted to lie. How beautiful is that, right? So the mum always knew when he was lying. I mean, it's just, just fantastic. So here's lying. Okay, lying. We see lying play out in that David wants to conceal his sin. 
And he does it in a very terrible way. He calls the commander of the army and says, Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. Invites him home. When he comes home, he says to him, Hey, mate, good to see you. How's the war going? Oh, yeah, war's going okay. Thank you very much, king. Thank you, sir. And he says, well, eat with me. And then why don't you go home? Why don't you go home and wash your feet? See, the the Bible can do euphemism as well, can't it, hey? Why don't you go home and wash your feet? What does he want to have happen? He wants Uriah to sleep with his wife, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. He sleeps at the entrance to the king's palace. And then uh, David's a bit surprised. And so verse 10, we're told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Does everyone understand how obvious that would be? Go home to your wife. Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as I live, I will not do such a thing. You see, Uriah, when he says that, everybody else is out there fighting the war. I couldn't look after myself and my needs at home. That would be wrong. Who does he condemn when he says that? He condemns David, doesn't he? And so David's scheme is, oh, look, mate, don't go home. Stay one more day. It says in the text, he got him drunk. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his Lord's servants. He did not go home. Note this well, guys. A drunk Uriah is more righteous than a sober David. It's pretty devastating, isn't it? So what's this lying? Well, it's a story in place of or to distort the truth. David wants to cover up his affair by having this man sleep with his wife, and he won't do it. And so what comes next? What comes next is the absolute tragedy of power and pride and position. The next thing that happens in the story is murder, and it's an unusual kind of murder. We're told that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, put Uriah out in front when the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. Can you see how careful David is? I don't want to kill Uriah, but what I want to do is I want you to put him at the front of the fighting, and then pull back from him, and then the other guys will kill him, and it'll just be a tragic tragic accident in war. All good, all done, no problems. And it seems that Joab is actually up for the challenge. He's a smart guy, and he goes, look, if we just let one guy die as we all run backwards, it'll look awkward. So we'll put some other guys around him, and a number of them die. And then he sends a note back home, and it says, if when you read this note to the king, his anger flares up, saying what the heck are you doing, Joab? Say, and also your servant Uriah has died. Because the king will go, oh yeah, I got it. You did it. Okay, well done. You've carried it out. What, What I want you to see though is David sinned and now it's cost one man, no, multiple men their lives to try and cover up what happened. It's despicable, isn't it? In fact, the most despicable thing is that Uriah is made to carry his own death letter to Joab. It's disgusting. David is truly terrible here, and he chooses to end the life of another. It is murder as surely as if he'd done it himself, but he's conniving enough to have not done it himself. 
So how does sin work? We've seen sin at work here. How does sin work? Sin tempts us with the whisper of more. Sin tempts us with the whisper of more. And then it blinds us to the blessings we have. Do you remember the Garden of Eden? Adam and Eve are put in the garden, and God says to them, hey, you can have all the trees in the garden, but one tree you can't have. And so when the devil comes and he whispers, you could have more, what happens is that they take their eyes off their blessings and they fixate on the forbidden. Can you see this? Now the only tree in the garden is the one that you can't have. I've lost all the others that were given to me, and I'm obsessed on the one I can't have. Can you see how that works? And so what happens next is that we exchange gratefulness for gratification. Gratefulness would have us look at the blessing and enjoy it and give praise to God. Gratification is stuff all that. I want my something right now. We exchange gratefulness to God for his provision for gratification in the now. Sin offers us sugar, but it gives us only shame, secrecy, and slavery. It offers us sugar, but it offers us only shame and secrecy and slavery. Who boasts of their sin? We all want to cover it up. So how does sin work? Ultimately, sin makes us mortal enemies of God. The Bible says that the one who sins is the one who will die. You are literally in mortal danger because of your sin. So did David get away with it? Did David actually win in this exchange? It almost seems so at the start of verse 27. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. It seems like it's all going well, doesn't it? Happy days. Oh, tragic military accident. Look at me. I'm such a good man. I'm looking after the widow in the city and I'm taking her into my family and looking after it. So it's quite a nice bonus that she's very pretty. Oh, look, she's pregnant. Well, I better look after the child. Do you see, it looks like he's gotten away with it, but have a look at the end of verse 27. It says this, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Somebody was watching. Who was watching? Somebody always sees. Who always sees? It's God, isn't it? And he had displeased God. And this is God's verdict on what had happened. The rest is an account, not an endorsement. Often we see in the Old Testament, lots of stuff happening. And we go, oh, it's in the Bible. I guess God likes it. No, it's an account of what happened. Here's God's verdict. God doesn't say it's okay to murder, it's okay to do adultery. It doesn't say that at all. But here's God's verdict. God's verdict is, that displeased me. And God wants to communicate with David. And so he sends his trusted servant, Nathan, who's a prophet, and he tells a story about a ewe lamb, a baby lamb, a beautiful, precious lamb. And I want to read the story to you again because it's so powerful. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took 
the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. Verse 5, David burned with anger against him and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. It's you. You are the one who has done this. And it's not a lamb. It's somebody incredibly precious. It's a person. And you neglected your great wealth and you stole from someone who had less than you. I want you to note that in the midst of his sin, David still has righteous indignation. He still sees justice. Do you see that? He's absolutely shot through with sin, but he can look at someone else and point the finger at them being wrong. Do you see that? That's pretty striking, isn't it? He's utterly wrong. But I can see wrong over there, and someone should do something about that. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? So what happens next? Well, this sign tells us to make a great reversal, and that's what happens. Have a look at 12, chapter 12, verse 13. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David is genuine in this. He gets it. All of a sudden, it comes crashing home. That you're the man doesn't bounce off him. It crashes through his heart. It breaks him to pieces. And then he goes, I've sinned. I've sinned against the Lord. And so repentance, repentance is a U-turn. You turn back to God. You say, I get it. I've been wrong. I haven't lived up to my own standard. I've fallen far short of your holy standard, God. I'm turning back to you. I'll stop running my own race. Repentance is a U-turn, turning back to God. David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied these incredible words, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Do you see here the connection between sin and death? You have sinned. You're forgiven. You're not going to die, although death was what he deserved. Death was what David deserved. Now, does anyone play with these things? Used to. Did you ever do one of those little runs where you push them over and they all... You know what it's about. I think that this is the best example we have of consequences, isn't it? One falls down, it leads to another one, and then another one, another one. And the way these are laid out here, actually chaotic consequences, and that's what sin does. Not just in a neat row, things you didn't expect to get knocked over, get knocked over when sin is at work. And so we see here there are terrible consequences because David did this. In verse 10 we see, Now the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. God says, I'm going to upend your family. I'm going to put the sword in your family. And on top of that, he tells him tragically in verses 14 and 15, because you have done this, because you've shown contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. It's an utter disaster. And what I want you to see is God forgives him. And there are tragic consequences in the world because of his sin. David's actually forgiven, but sin will work in this broken world and it wreaks a terrible havoc. 
As we look at the David story, I want us to be aware of what I've called the ulam effect. And you're like, oh, what's the ulam effect? Don't worry, something I just made up, okay? What's the ulam effect? David heard the story and he went, you're wrong. And I think we can hear the David story and go, David's wrong. And I want us to be aware of condemning David whilst giving ourselves a free pass. Yeah? If I can say you're the man, you're the woman. We have a value in our church. We have four values. We want to be a church that's faithful and adventurous, compassionate and enduring. That's the fourth one down the bottom here. We have some questions that help us think about how we live out these values. And they ask, where are you weak and in danger of falling? And if today you came to church thinking, I'm doing brilliantly, all I want to say is I hope God's word is showing you perhaps that's not true. Who knows you well enough to ask this question? In other words, who knows you well enough to know where you're weak? Who are you strengthening to run the race to the end? I want us to think about what we're going to do with application today by thinking about a little toolbox of things that will help us as we deal with sin. The first and most obvious one to say is, if you're not right with God today, hear the beautiful forgiveness that's offered in Jesus. In John 3.16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. There is today full and free forgiveness by faith on offer. If you come to Jesus and say, I sinned, he'll say, I forgive you. Not in the I sinned uh, that you kind of get from your kids when they don't mean it. Doesn't trick you and it won't trick God. If it's heartfelt, there's real forgiveness on offer. But many of you will have started that journey. You'll, you'll be people who have already received the forgiveness. How then shall we live? There's a little bit in Ecclesiastes 10, 18. It says, through laziness, the rafters sag. Because of idle hands, the house leaks. Now, many of us live in new houses here, so good luck. Well done. Uh, but over time, if we neglect them, they'll go to pot. I think the question for us to do is to think about what do we do with our free time? See, David was caught out because he wasn't doing the military campaign and he was on the roof at night wandering around. Why wasn't he tired? Because he hadn't done anything in that day. He was lazy, and in his laziness and in his lack of commitment at night, he's led astray. I want to encourage you, what do you do with your free time? What do you need to cut off, turn off, turn on, switch, whatever? Think about healthy habits in your free time. In 2 Timothy uh, 2.22, it says this, Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace along with those who call out of the Lord out of a pure heart. Talk about free time. I want to tell you it's flea time. Run away from the stuff that will trip you up. Get it away. Do you know what it is that's causing you to stumble? If you do, and, and no one needs to know, but if you know, what can you put in place that will stop you doing it in your free, I've got a sleepy brain, but I'm indulging my sinfulness? 
Secondly, we don't want to do this on our own. It says in Hebrews uh, chapter 3, See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful and unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. You see, there's actually a together in avoiding sin. Are we helping each other keep running the race? Because if you're trying to do it on your own, you'll fall. Does someone know you well enough to strengthen you in that race? So there's a togetherness and there's an apartness. What do we do when we're on our own? It says in the very next verse, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. I want us to be people who read God's word. Do you know why? Because I want you to know it well enough to speak it into someone else's life. And I want you to know it well enough so that when God needs to prompt you, you hear it and you hear it say, you are the man or you are the woman. You need to have someone in your life and some way in your life you have a you, lie, a you lamb moment where someone points out to you you're not living the right way because of God's word. I want us to be people who practice daily repentance. I have a little prayer app on my phone that, that prompts me with things that I should confess. And the things it says is, think about money, Think about sex, think about power, think about pride, think about greed, think about coveting, think about deceit. Confess specifics is what it says to me. I tell you what, there aren't too many times I sit down and read through that list and think, no, I'm clean, no problems. We need to be people who practice repentance. In 1 John 8, Uh, 1.8 says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It's a pretty good offer. Get into repentance. It's pretty good. And then there's this wonderful thing. If you've been forgiven by Jesus, you can know this great truth. In Romans 8.1, it says this, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can know you're forgiven. You can say to the devil, back off if he's whispering about your condemnation in your ear if you've trusted Jesus. And so I want you to know forgiveness and I want you to be able to rest in it. I want to finish with this little flower. This is where we finish. This is called the hyssop plant. The hyssop plant. And it turns up in the Bible, in the book of Exodus, when the people of God are leaving Egypt. And God says he's going to judge all of Egypt and people in the households of Egypt are going to die. But he says to his own, his own people, he says, if you kill a lamb and take the blood from that on a hyssop plant and put it over the door, the angel of God will pass over your house and you'll be spared. Hyssop. Then it says later on in Leviticus, it says, if you want to get cleansed from skin disease, Take water and red thread and pray and wash with hyssop and you'll be made clean and restored. And then in John's account of Jesus' life, Jesus is dying on the cross and the very last thing they do is they take some wine vinegar and they put it on the stalk of a hyssop plant and hold it up to him and he has some wine vinegar on his lips and then he says, it is finished. Hyssop. 
And then we read these amazing words in Psalm 51, which David wrote about this incident in his life. He says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and you're justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Listen to these words. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you've crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that there's forgiveness in Jesus. I thank you that you can create a clean heart in us and I ask that you would do it. I pray for those who've never known your forgiveness that they might know it today. I pray for those who know it and are assured of it that they might rest in it. I pray, Father, that we might flee from sin and pursue your heart. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.